0: Everybody, welcome back to This Is Not About Your Body. I'm your host, Jesse Nealand. And today I have a very exciting guest, somebody that I've been following for a really long time on social media. And uh, I'm excited to bring on today. Uh, this is Jess Sprangle, who is a licensed eating disorder counselor, advocate, and educator who believes in joy and liberation for all people in all bodies. Uh, she specializes in treating eating disorders, but also happens to be a total meme queen on Instagram. So, welcome, Jess.
1: Thank you for having me. Super excited to be here.
0: Yeah. Um, So I'm just going to have you sort of get started with a little brief intro. So tell me about yourself and what you do.
1: Sure. Um, So I'm Jess. Um, I am a licensed therapist. I specialize in eating disorders, but because eating disorders often come with a ton of different things, um, I have come to also specialize in other stuff. Um, So a majority of the clients I see are LGBTQ um, neurodivergent, um, and usually have some other diagnosis, whether it's mm. like depression, anxiety, fill in the blank, um, and an eating disorder. Um, I really love working with teens. I don't do that as much anymore, but um I do just love working with adults, adolescents, um, the gamut, and I'm trying to think what else I do. Um, more recently, I kind of have moved into consultation. So I'm doing a lot more education and consultation, um, with other professionals. So that's like my big passion project right now. I really love teaching people, um, in part because the eating disorder field is, despite having a lot of professionals in it it is still really small as a niche. Mm. Um, and a lot of people like outside of the eating disorder field don't have a whole lot of information about eating disorders. So my goal is to provide education and and consultation to folks who want to learn more about eating disorders or just want to enhance their practice. So that has Ooh, been, that's cool. Yeah, that has been awesome. Um I love the folks who have joined up and have been with me through it. Um it's it's new. I started it in July. So it's been um a bit of a you know I think anytime you start a new project it's like okay is this going to work? How is this going to go? Um yeah. so I'm really, really grateful to the people who have been part of it and they have really held on with me. So it's been awesome. Um, that is so cool. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's me in a nutshell, professionally. Um, yeah. those, are, those are the things I love to, to do and work with. Um, I really love being a therapist. I really can't imagine doing anything else. Um, I don't know what I would do if I had to do <laughs> something else. I would be really sad. I think um, I just love working with people.
0: Amazing. So, I mean, I, I think that the the project you're talking about, the new project is so cool because I also see a lot of like need for it. I just, I love the idea that we could get some of the um, information, this, this incredibly crucial information because eating disorders impact so many more people than anyone realizes outside of the space of like you signed up for a recovery program. Therefore you have access to this information. Um, so yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I also wanted to go back. Uh it's sort of perhaps a strange question, but why do you think so many people with eating disorders are like also in another uh diagnosis camp or showing up in LGBTQ or showing up with neurodivergence?
1: Excellent question. Um okay, how do I don't want to answer this? <laughs> um, you know, I think in very many ways, like an eating disorder is It's not entirely behavioral, obviously, like there's a lot of um, like a very significant thought process that fuels the behaviors. But oftentimes, if we think about it, like it is smoke and mirrors, like a person is engaging with food and their body in such a way because of X reason, you know, it might be because of a history of trauma, or it might be because um, of dysphoria, or it could be um, because we live in a very neurotypical world and unfortunately it is not very accommodating to folks who are neurodivergent. Um, so it can be almost like an assimilation practice. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think there are so many reasons why people have eating disorders, which is, you know, I think something that we don't always understand as a culture. Like there isn't just one reason, um, yeah. there are a million. And, you know, it, one, hopefully one day we have more research and information about that, but in the meantime, I think we just see so much like co-occurrence. Um, yeah. And I think for I think for the most part, trauma fuels a lot of it. I wouldn't say that that is everybody's experience because we never want to talk in absolutely yeah, yeah. when it comes to eating disorders um, or anything. But I mean, I do think, you know, trauma, even if it's just like what a person perceives as trauma, because that is what trauma is. It's like how a person's body reacts to an mm-hmm. event. Um, and I think that that often is what, fuels someone's development of an eating disorder in addition to temperament metabolism yeah um, brain chemistry fill in the blank it's a ton of a ton of different factors
0: yeah um that is something that i obviously work a lot with uh in in my coaching practice like we don't do the um you know the the actual in depth anything but we run into stuff right we run into trauma i outsource i work with a lot of people who also have therapy um you know specializing in eating disorder therapy or just regular therapy to support them as they sort of work through the other sort of co-occurring stuff but a huge part of what i do i think is just really inviting people into the awareness that there there is something else going on yeah and i feel like even that even that is not a mainstream idea for for eating disorders Certainly not for body image issues.
1: No, you know, and and it's frustrating. I I think the sort of field has grown. Um, Even, you know, I can think about my own experience and going through treatment as an adolescent. And the, you know, some of the mainstream ideas in like the 2000 to 2010 area really problematic um you know I don't don't know if it's changed so significantly but there was a lot more like shame-based treatment happening and a lot more like you're doing this which first of all even that language is really confusing um but a lot of like you're doing this to like harm other people yeah to get attention
0: I feel like that was the big thing I heard a lot of (laughs) back then
1: Right. Or like, you know, you need to really work on getting better for like the other people in your life. Oh, okay. You're really disruptive, um, which is like very much like as an adolescent, I think that that's, I'm not surprised by that rhetoric because yeah. that's just like, I feel like adolescent treatment in general, not even just, mm. disorders, but things have, I mean, I do think things have changed. Like even you know, when I went through treatment, um, the concept of like recovered did not exist. Um, that was wow. like, not cause I think that came out like 2011. I don't, I don't know. I'm just spitballing there, but, yeah. um, that was like, just not a framework that had been presented to me. Um, in fact, it was more of like, you will live with this for the rest of your life and you yeah. will just have to deal with it. <laughs> and like, I don't know. At 17, that's not exactly the most like hopeful thing. Um, but yeah, I I don't think there was a lot of like, there was certainly not good understanding around like how trauma contributes. Um, I literally got like zero trauma education through my treatment, um, which would have been helpful, but yeah, it was like just very focused on the behavioral aspects, which again, makes sense in a higher level here, if you're disrupting the symptoms, but not a whole lot of other stuff going on.
0: Yeah. Ooh, yeah. I mean, I remember uh, like friends and classmates and and peers who would go through those kinds of experiences and how much it seemed to be like that they were almost being blamed for being so needy, like blamed for, for attention, being attention seeking. This was a really big one, um, which I also feel like I just wonder, like, w- would that still have come up if this were uh, something that affected boys more than girls? Like, you know, this perception of teenage girls being attention seeking, like for literally just needing help. I I can't, you know, I can't parse that apart from patriarchy and and view of gender stuff, but yeah, uh, just to hear that there wasn't even a concept for recovered. I didn't know that
1: Mm -mm. that's because it, Carolyn Coston, um, she create, I think, identified the term or, um, like trademarked it, whatever the word we want to oh. use there. Um, and her book in which I think she talks about that, which is eight keys. I have it in here somewhere. Um, eight keys to recovering from an eating disorder. I think that's what it's called. Um, that was where she talked about it and that did not come out until like early 2010s. I think. got it. Yeah. So, yeah. So it is actually a newer concept in within like the eating disorder field. Yeah.
0: So, talk about recovered. What does it mean then?
1: So it, it's funny that I even bring it up because I don't use it actually, like as a because it's it's so not um, kind of embedded in my own experience that I I can't I don't really it doesn't resonate with me as yeah. much. Um, I just say like in long term recovery um, mm-hmm. for myself. But um, the concept of recovered is is basically like a person in long term recovery who is like has not experienced symptoms in a really long time. Um, it's mostly like maybe not necessarily like free of eating disorder thoughts necessarily, but like they, if they have a thought, it kind of moves along and overall like a healthy perspective and um, relationship with body and food, Um, which is, it's vague, I suppose, in a way, um, because what does, what does that mean? It's so different for every person. And I think that's also why I stopped using it is because it's such like an inaccessible term, no shade to it. Like if people want to use it, I, you know, I really support that end for myself, I was like, this just doesn't, it feels like very final. Um, and I, you yeah. know, I don't think that I, I don't think that really any person who struggles with any sort of mental health or mental illness is ever like at an end point, you know, yeah. I, I will process through and, um, grow through my own mental health stuff probably forever. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm cool with that. Like, I think, you know, challenge accepted. Yeah, um, that's how, that's how I view it. Um, Which is, I think, also why I don't use that term. Um, And also, again, I think just from like a privileged place, it's, of course, like, you know, thinking about my own privilege, like, I had access to so many resources. So, of course, like, I have access to recovered versus like a lot Mm, of folks who have that.
0: Yeah. Um, So, I could imagine it being kind of like, uh, you know, body positivity sort of messaging around like loving your body as sort of unconditionally and forever. It, it ultimately, it absolutely helps some people and I, I totally support that if it does, but I also see it do more harm than good for a lot of folks because it ends up feeling like an unrealistic, impossible goal.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think that's where a lot of the criticisms have kind of moved, where it's like, this is just like another arbitrary slash like mm-hmm. impossible goal for folks to work towards and yeah. you know um people with eating disorders myself included really again love a challenge and um, <laughs> well, i think that can unfortunately like become almost like part of eating disorder symptomatology where it's like oh yes, yeah yeah, like, to work really hard towards this thing which is a recovery thing but i'm going to work towards it yeah. in an eating disorder way Um, so it's, it's almost like counterintuitive,
0: uh, makes so much sense though. Um, so the way that I will often approach, uh, with clients around body image stuff, um, is the idea of like relating to those thoughts and feelings differently. And I'm guessing it's sort of similar that long-term recovery doesn't mean those thoughts and feelings don't show up. It means you feel really, really well resourced when they do, or you have a relationship with them that is entirely different. Um, so talk a little bit about someone who is going to, continuously see like those things show up in their long-term recovery uh and how that like sort of best case scenario how that actually looks so or not best case it. but you know
1: well yeah well, yeah <laughs> we, we want to think best case um sure. yeah i mean i think in in my own personal experience and in my experience with clients like what this really looks like is because i think unfortunately too like with eating disorder thoughts there's this like once people are able to identify them and see them in real time there's a lot of shame where it's like Mm. why do I have these thoughts like why is this still happening like why am I still experiencing this and a lot of it is just having compassion for yourself and compassion for the fact that like oh your your brain just does this this is not like some you know insidious process that you're causing um you know unfortunately like once like a pathway is formed in your brain and that's like been an activated pathway it's going to continue to be activated it's not going to like just die um unfortunately so during times of stress that might absolutely yep. pop up more um so a lot of it is like education and trying to help folks recognize like oh this is just like brain garbage sometimes <laughs> um it, you know usually i'll i'll call it like brain indigestion or oh or, i like garbage, that where it's like you know, similarly, like sometimes your body just like creates things it doesn't need, or like yeah. it takes in things that it like can't really process or, and it's just like it's, but it's just there. You can't really yeah. just like get rid of it. Yeah. Um, it's a matter though, of just identifying it that way and recognizing like, Oh, I don't have to lean into this or like, yeah. I don't actually have to like engage with the garbage. Um, and I think like using it fun words or kind of uh-huh. like creating some sort of metaphor helps. Um, folks do well with that. Um,
0: Yeah,
1: and yeah, and I, I think that like, I have certainly seen, um, I worked with adolescents a lot earlier in my career and it was so always so cool to watch people grow up and really like, you know, and I think sometimes as people grow up, like their life expands and they can see life beyond their eating disorder. Does that happen always? Obviously not, but, um, I feel really lucky that I was able to see that in a number of cases and, really what it looked like was people engaging more in their lives and seeing like, oh, I can go to college if I, you know, and I can have these thoughts, but I can still go to college. So I think like having a dangling carrot too is always nice, Um, like something you're kind of working towards. But, you know, I think in like, in real life, what that looks like is like, you can kind of wake up and be like, Oh, I feel X today in my body and just be like, okay. And next we're yeah. going and doing whatever. Um, it's like, you know, feeling certain types of ways or like having certain thoughts, but still doesn't really stop the flow of your life.
0: Yeah, totally. I really, really love, uh, brain indigestion. Mm-hmm. I think because it it's so easily, uh, parallel to like, if you didn't know that indigestion was a thing that happens and is perfectly safe, even though it's a little uncomfortable, you might think you were having a heart attack, right? Like if someone right. thought that 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 sort of feeling, like you could easily spiral out of control over it, or you could yeah. just go, well, this is annoying and move on with your day. And it really feels to me like a lot of what you are talking about is getting people to the place that they can say, this is annoying and move on with their day. It like, it cuts the whole thing down in size and power. Yeah. And that is exactly what they need, right? Like, because we can't just stop stuff. We can't just be like, no more thinking this thought anymore, Um, no more having indigestion. You just you have to be able to relate in it, relate with it in a way that it doesn't screw your life up.
1: Yeah, and I do, I do a lot of um, parts work, which like probably beyond the scope of this, but it's Mm -hmm. essentially like, oh, we're all comprised of different parts, and you know, they're usually parts of ourselves are usually well-meaning. Um, yeah. So I try also to conceptualize it as like, okay, well, this part of yourself is really trying hard to protect you. Like, yeah. what, like, you know, this, this part of you, the eating disorder part of you is really driving the bus right now.
0: So mm-hmm. like,
1: what are we driving the bus away from?
0: Mm-hmm. You know, what's,
1: what's going on? So really trying to help people understand like there's usually a function to this even sort of just exist for like funsies. Um, I I don't think anyone's like having a great time. So (laughs) really reminding people like this is, you have found this incredible way to survive and adapt and, but it's not working quite the same way anymore Mm. and that's okay. But what was it doing for you and find something else that will maybe provide a similar comfort, yeah. but without all of the destruction.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Um, I did want to just ask, cause I read on your website and I really, really liked this, that you, you particularly enjoy working with quote unquote difficult clients. Like I forget how you put it, but people who are sort of labeled in this way as like, uh, being difficult or being too much or being, you know, whatever. And I, I wanted to hear a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, um, it's so funny. What I think where that stemmed from was in the in in the just general mental health field. There's a lot of conversation around like who is your ideal client, and I have so much problem. (laughs) Like I take so much issue with that, which is probably just my own shit. Like it's just semantics, and I'm nitpicky, but. I mean, the clients I work with are never anyone's ideal clients, unfortunately. Mm. And I can say that as someone who was, I have never been an ideal client because of all Mm. of my shit. And unfortunately, like there's just this way in which people are labeled depending on diagnosis. Like I just, I worked a lot um, with folks with borderline personality when I was in my internship. And I, that diagnosis in particular is so demonized in our field um, also very, um, women centric, which is like, surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, it really taught me a lot, um, about how there isn't, there's just no empathy for certain diagnoses. And in yeah. fact, like there's like the opposite of empathy. Yeah. And it's like this labeling is like, you're difficult, you're resistant and people internalize that. I mean, I've had so many clients ask me outright, like, do you want to keep working with me? Am I too difficult? And it just, Aww. oh, it like, oh, cracks me open because yes, I want, I want to work. Like everybody is difficult in a particular way. Like Mm -hmm. none of us are without, um, I don't know, resistance and flaws. And I, (laughs) a lot of people I work with in our field are people who are labeled as difficult. I think just generally people with eating disorders are labeled as difficult. Oh, such a resistant, um, illness or whatever. And I'm like, shut up. Like, I don't want to hear your nonsense. Um, Do you think that's just
0: because people see it as like, it's like a choice and they should just choose differently? Is that basically where that comes from?
1: Yeah, I've heard different things. Um, You know, I think someone who's like really and truly not educated around it would say something like that Um, in very much the same way that I think people look at that like substance use. Mm-hmm. issues as a choice. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I think more often what I hear is that there's just a lot of difficulty like holding the ambivalence that is seen in eating disorders, where it's like can't really sit with the like the medical piece, where mm. it's like someone's physiology is threatened on a daily basis, but they don't really, they're not necessarily gung-ho about choosing recovery. Mm. which that, Hey, that makes sense to me. I think, I think the medical piece is really challenging for, for providers to sit with. Um, and that I think makes it difficult.
0: Yeah. So something that I read and correct me if I'm wrong, but I I remember reading that eating disorders were the most lethal of all mental health diagnoses. Yeah.
1: I I think it's like, um, I I don't know if it's since changed but mm. i know that in 2021 it was surpassed by opioid use disorder
0: oh you know um, what that makes a lot of sense yeah this which, would have been a couple of years ago
1: which makes sense like given yeah. the pandemic um but yes i mean otherwise eating disorders are one of like the most um fatal psychiatric yeah. illness rel- versus substance use issues yeah um, which makes again totally makes sense um yeah. but it's yeah. I think like the statistic is, um, someone dies of an eating disorder or like related, like complications of an eating disorder, like every hour. Wow. Which
0: is terrible. But. It is terrible, but it's also something that I think it, it sort of like blows my mind when I think about it too much. I get really like, I don't know. It's a, it's a dark headspace to try to occupy that. We have diet culture pushing this whole idea that, you know, obviously there's a lot of misinformation and manipulation there, but essentially the the idea is that it would be healthier, right? Like that they're trying to give you something right. that would be healthier than whatever it is you're already doing. And on the other side of that, we've got, we know that diet culture influences eating disorders and eating disorders are just killing people. So like, what in the hell do people think they're doing? Like, why is this an acceptable... I mean, I recognize, oh my God, it's complicated. I know there's layers, but it's so, so upsetting just to to see how easily people are comfortable pushing diets and just don't seem to care in the slightest on the other side that being underweight, being malnourished, being, you know, it just, it's so dangerous and unhealthy.
1: It, it, yeah, I mean, I try, I, I also have to like kind of train myself out of not going into that space because yeah. it's, it's really easy to, I mean, I think in the eating disorder field in particular, it is so easy to get burnt out. It is so easy to like really fall into this place of despair because, you know, you work with people who like by and large don't get better. Um, Granted, I I feel very fortunate. I have walked with a lot of people through their journeys and they have gotten better and just, you know, live a life that they identify as worth living. Mm -hmm. And, and still like there are plenty of people who don't. And I think that that is really hard to hold. And purchased it with, especially when we know that there are so many ways in which like this, this could be remedied. You know, there's so, so many, you know, there are so many resources for people who want to go on a diet, but there are so few resources in comparison for folks who are dealing with an eating disorder. Similarly, like people around them, like, you know, I think that's where there's a lot, like a huge deficit in resources is like people in um, their community is a huge
0: deficit, yeah.
1: I think for folks in recovery. Um, whereas like, I don't know, like there's community everywhere. If you're yeah. it. It's like, you just can yes. talk about it literally anywhere you are. Oh, um, so true. So infuriating. Um, but I mean, yeah. And I think unfortunately diet culture has also influenced, um, who we identify as having an eating disorder and mm-hmm. like what different, um, what different bodies should, Get in terms of treatment, which I think is also bogus. Um, You know, so that's
0: actually one of the questions I have written down. So talk a little bit about that. What do you mean? Um,
1: You know, I I think largely I would say yes, it is influenced by diet culture because I don't know, like that we would have this issue if not for that component. Um, But I think you know, if we a lot of the time if I um, offer a training, usually if it's like a one on one, I ask the like people who are attending. Like, what do you think of when? Like, what comes to mind when you yeah. hear eating disorder? Almost always, I get like, you know, thin cis white female adolescent. Yep. Um, who comes from money? <laughs> like, pretty much <laughs> always. Like, totally. I get some variation of those, which is. You know, unfortunately, I think that is the stereotype for a reason, because Mm -hmm. that is like what we see most represented in media. It is what we see most represented in case studies, things like that. So like if you pull up research like that is like largely what is what is studied. Yeah. But I think we have finally done a little bit more research and found that good majority of folks who struggle with eating disorders are like of quote unquote normal weight Mm -hmm. or in the quote-unquote overweight category say like Mm -hmm. quotations because those top uh those categories are arbitrary and don't really mean anything yeah um but like most people even with anorexia do not look quote-unquote look like what we envision anorexia looks like um and you can really have anorexia at any weight um because under the concept of underweight is we as a culture view it as like oh well you're in this BMI category, blah, blah, blah. But in reality, it's like you are under the weight that is healthy and ideal for your body. So it's so individual.
0: Yeah. Um, So having been a personal trainer and worked really hard to keep my own body, you know, in a a very particular space, I can look back and say, I was underweight for years. I was even technically, I think I was heavy enough to stay out of the underweight category for the most part, because I I was like training. So I had a lot of muscle, Um, but undoubtedly I was in a space that was not like healthy or sustainable. And I can just see that and be like, not one single person not one time in all of those years ever expressed concern for me and my health and i mean that's just not how it's seen right it's not seen as a problem until you're literally like hooked up in a hospital on a ventilator because you're like you know your organs started shutting down yeah then you've gone too far
1: <laughs> yeah it's and it, it is it's really infuriating um you know and i can pull from my own experiences and the experiences of clients where it's like it is interesting to see how you were treated, even in like treatment spaces, um, mm. based on how you look, because I know, you know, I know for myself, like, having gone cycled through treatment several times, I was treated very differently, um, yeah. depending on where I was, you know, diagnosis wow. wise or weight wise, which diagnosis is a whole different soapbox I get on. But yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it is really, really problematic. And I think it's especially harmful, because it's problematic in the system. Like, you know, it's, it's basically like the call is coming from inside the house. Mm. Like, You know, I think eating disorder treatment, unfortunately has taken a really long time to catch up to, Oh, all people of all sizes can have eating disorders. Yeah. We need to be thoughtful about our messaging and also like thoughtful about how we, you know, provide nutrition across the board. Yeah. Um, also like even thinking about like furniture, how do we, you know, how do we um, mm. like decorate our spaces and is it accommodating to folks yeah. of different sizes? Oftentimes, no. Mm. Um, so it's just, it's really curious that a lot of like a lot of the eating disorder treatment system actually perpetuates the fat phobia that we see yeah. kind of culturally um around eating disorders it's not yeah. it's not great um seems like there's some work being done <laughs> around sure. it but it's it's slow going
0: yeah so something that i see being so so damaging unfortunately is people who don't feel like they qualify because of this messaging people who have basically anybody other than that stereotype you just sort of like um drew upon they will often say to me like well you know I'm weird about food but it's not like I have an eating disorder or anything you know if you looked at me you'd understand why or something and i'm like we have really come to to think of it as almost like a like there's one symptom and the symptom is visual and there's nothing else. And therefore representation of fat bodies, representation of trans bodies, representation of, you know, black and indigenous and people of color. Like these are not, we are just not, it's like, they don't even feel permission to identify that they have a problem because it's not quote unquote bad enough, which I realize is sort of its own whole thing too. Right. Well,
1: and I think too, there's clinician bias or like lack of competence so far as like identifying folks in the, like in marginalized populations who might struggle with eating disorders, that's its own huge problem yeah. because most eating disorder professionals are not competent in terms of like just working with folks outside of a very small window. Yeah. Um, like even, you know, I, I think it's, it's interesting to me that there aren't more like LGBTQ um affirming providers mm. in the eating disorder space because i feel it feels very obvious to me like yeah. this is not not that like i think it is a very specialized type of ap- approach but it's not so specialized that like you should not just be doing this right um, right so I, I i feel very frustrated around that just because it's like so many people who yeah. are queer and trans have eating disorders and often yeah. they are not clocked because I think it is very accepted. Like, I, I think in queer spaces, it's like, oh yeah, like that's yeah. just the thing. And especially I think for trans folks, like yep. just from, uh, like, because I think there's this expectation that with eating disorders, it's like dysmorphia, but I think, I think dysphoria is also a very big part of eating yeah. disorders as well. It's really just, if you have discomfort in your body and you're soothing that through using eating disorder symptoms, okay. Like that's, that's still an eating disorder. It doesn't really yeah. Yeah, yeah. necessarily matter what's like provoking it.
0: Totally. So this being something that, um, I almost feel like, I don't know how, how quite to put it, but there is, um, a concern or, or sort of a pattern I see come up where clients will say something to the effect of like feeling like failures because they didn't, they didn't eating disorder properly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, they're mm-hmm. like, I'm out here suffering. Cause I think about food all the time and you know, whatever, but I still am not thin enough. Like, it's like, I've, I've failed at having the right kind of eating disorder or something, yeah, I'm not you know? good know, having an eating disorder. Yes. I'm not good at having an yeah. eating disorder. That's exactly it. And that is such a, man, such a backwards little thing to have to navigate.
1: I cannot tell you how often I hear that. Um, uh-huh. I haven't had a nickel. Um, <laughs> be very rich.
0: It, which, like, it just, it breaks my brain. Um, yeah, like, there's no brain. other diagnosis that we do this with, right? Like, are, I'm not right. depressed enough. Like, I'm not anxious enough. Like, nobody else.
1: I, I mean, I think we could probably see parallels in, like, the substance use world. Like there, mm. that there's like a hierarchy in terms of, I think sometimes like folks who have abused, have used opioids are like viewed as like, I don't know, like not, it's not like the same thing, but it's like, oh, like these are people who have suffered the most.
0: Yeah. Like, like they almost like deserve the label.
1: Right. Like, oh, like they get the best treatment or they should get the best treatment. Oh wow. Yeah. Though, I don't think it, it is not quite the same. um
0: Right. Cause they're not like celebrated the way thin people are.
1: No, no. And yeah, I I think there, it's so, it's so interesting that that piece about like, I'm bad at having an eating disorder. I cannot tell you, like, I've heard that so much that it's like, how is this such a universal symptom? Like, I feel like this needs to be like talked about and embedded in like how we conceptualize this illness because so much of it, I think at this point has been informed by our treatment system where Mm -hmm. it's like, and insurance companies, where it's like, oh well, right. my my insurance company cut me from treatment. I don't know why it keeps like the um,
0: yeah, that's okay. Camera
1: keeps like zooming out. Um, the the insurance systems that, especially in the United States, um, I'm not entirely sure how it goes in other countries. Um, I have heard that with Canada, it's not quite the same. Um, yeah. but essentially, like here, you, <laughs> um. our, yeah, our, uh, healthcare system is an interesting one. Um, but essentially you can go to eating disorder treatment. You can like quote unquote qualify and you have to Mm -hmm. qualify. Um, and once you get there, if they like, you know, if you gain X amount of weight and they decide that you are no longer, you should no longer be getting this level of care, they can just cut you and you Mm -hmm. will have to go home. And, that, I think that very much has informed how eating disorders show up because people have really internalized that to mean like, unless I am like in a place where I can be in treatment for X amount of time, I'm definitely not sick enough. And it's, I mean, obviously our our whole healthcare system really needs a revamp. Um, that in particular, um, especially because, you know, the Granted, I don't think that substance use is well covered either, but mm-hmm. I think there is a lot better, um, coverage for a lot of, um, with a lot of insurance plans around substance use. Like they will at least yeah. give you like 30 days, I think in a, in a facility might not always be like your most ideal treatment, but you at least yeah. get 30 days. Whereas mm. eating disorders, like, okay, maybe you'll have like a week. Wow. Um, so it's, it's disappointing, um, to say the least. Yeah. And, and this isn't new. Like I, if this was going on, like when I was a teenager, which is yeah, long <laughs> enough ago, um, <laughs> like, okay, what are we, what are we doing to change this? There's just not, it, there's not a lot of movement.
0: Yeah. So it sends the message, like basically that you are not deserving of care until you are very, very sick, which I feel like is, uh, really very, Telling in this particular kind of space and also reflected, like you said, in how people say I'm not sick enough or I'm not good at this or, you know, whatever it is. But there's also something about that, um, that it, I guess it just feels like, oh, I've lost my train of thought. God damn it. Well, if it comes back, I'll share it. But there's there's something about that that like is just mind blowing. And it like it trips me out to think about the fact that someone could enter care. Oh, the other thing I was going to say is like until very recently, the diagnoses were around weight loss, right? Like you had to have lost a percentage of your body weight in order to qualify. And then once you've gained that percentage back, you are you're congratulations. You're healed, right? Like they can just watch you eat or make you eat and send you home. And they have done absolutely nothing to address the actual underlying issue because the weight change is a symptom and not even a guaranteed symptom. It's just a possible symptom. And they've just like made you now feel that if you go home and continue to suffer, you are invalid. You are crazy. You are bad or wrong. You know, now you're making it up. Like there's just the messages that this stuff sends to people so damaging.
1: And I, I can't think of anything more like insidious and just ugly than like communic- really like having a treatment system set up that communicates essentially, like it reinforces existing like cognitive distortions that mm-hmm. a person is already experiencing. Like so, you know, so many people with eating disorders have that like have issues with self-worth or have issues with believing they are deserving of anything, exactly. let alone care. You know, that that's so much of of the disorder is like I don't deserve love, I don't deserve food, I attention, don't, you know, fill in the blank. Yeah. And so to enter a system in which you are being told, you know, roll the dice, you know, you may get told on them any given day that, like, oh, actually you don't deserve this care anymore. Oh, yes. It's, it just reinforces it and it it makes it worse. I don't think that's really helpful. And then of course, you know, people cycle through treatment a lot and then Mm. they are blamed for being resistant or chronic. Right. Um, So, and we, our system has set that up. So it's really, I mean, it feels dystopian, honestly, but that is, I do think we don't like, one well, of course as a field we don't want to admit the harm that we've done sure. but I do think that we have contributed really significantly to the endurance of these illnesses and also just wow. their ongoing development um so we have a I don't know our uh the mental health field is a lot a lot to pay for kind of over the wow. just for a lot of illnesses but I think eating disorders
0: for yeah sure. it's like really refreshing to hear that though I I mean, one of the reasons, obviously, I wanted to have you on is I I felt like pretty aligned, you know, in terms of sort of viewing this through a lens of liberation and like really uh, just in a way that makes freaking sense to me, like getting to the root of the thing, not just writing it off and not contributing to ideas such as like, if you're fat, how could you possibly have an eating disorder? You don't count, which unfortunately is so, so common in other spaces, not necessarily explicitly stated like I just stated it, but the message is there anyway. Um But yeah, it is, it's, it's uncomfortable to hear someone in your field say it. It's also refreshing to hear someone in your field say it like, yes. Oh God.
1: It's yeah. I mean, it's horrible. Um, (laughs) And I think like accessing this space, like kind of where I do, I do genuinely believe these things and, you know, not from a, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Like I'm not trying to create problems. And I know that there are very many ways in which like, if you exist in the mental health field, as it currently stands, you are causing harm. I recognize that. And there are ways in which I help. And I have, you know, I have to find some balance there. And I have to at least name the ways in which I probably perpetuate harm. And also just the way our field in general perpetuates harm. And honestly, I think like recognizing that has, has even helped with my own recovery. I think like just acknowledging like this system is Blocked. And yeah, just the way yeah. in which we conceptualize eating disorders, the way in which we conceptualize treatment, it's not like it's oftentimes like not on the nose. And yeah. so it's given me, I don't know, like I think it gave me a lot of opportunities for unlearning. Um, you know, yeah. as an adult, I think I've been able to really unlearn a lot of the nonsense that I learned from treatment yeah. as a teen. And it's really just, I feel like I've been able to have a lot more compassion for myself. And through that, of course, I can have a lot more compassion
0: for my clients who yeah. have very much similar struggles. Yeah. Well, it's also something I think we we sort of see like the psychiatric field, like the medical field, we're like, Oh, it's science. It must be true. So if you know, it feels really, really objective, even when it's not right. Like being gay was considered a mental illness, like not that long ago. And, and there's still so many issues in this space. So for someone to be like, well, this is about way you're cured. Like you just, you feel like, Oh, well, they're a freaking medical authority, you know, like they know that what they're talking about. So so clearly it's me who's wrong. There's not, uh, there's not a lot of talk about the fact that this is new and evolving and constantly making mistakes and constantly going back in and rewriting like definitions of things. So I feel like having gone through what what you're talking about, really learning this stuff, it makes you go, oh, okay. So now I can actually like trust myself. I can empower them to trust themselves. Diagnoses, et cetera, can be in the ether around us rather than centering it on like, it's this or it's nothing.
1: Right. And I, (laughs) I, I certainly see a lot of, well, and I think just, this is the nature of the thing. A lot of people with eating disorders are very fixated on rigidity and like hard and fast. Sure. Things. Um, you know, so I have a lot of people who are like, well, this is what the diagnosis says. Mm-hmm. So I need to have all of these checked off. And I love just educating people I'm yeah. on the DSM yeah. and being like, actually like, no, yeah. um, and in part, I think the the DSM has evolved over time to fit the like medical industrial complex. Like it is totally. very much has been um, created and written to really in such a way that it is like billable by insurance <laughs> essentially, um, which is really unfortunate, but that is, that's the reality. Like if you, yeah. even the sort of diagnoses are so behavioral in, in the DSM and like yeah. we know that there's so much about eating disorders that is not the for all. and that mm. is not listed at all there there's like hardly any. just because they can't right because you can't qualify that yeah you can't quantify it and measure it mm-hmm. so um like the anorexia nervosa um diagnosis has a BMI criterion which it was yeah, like it does when they were, yeah w- when they were creating the DSM-5 I'm I believe that it was pushed for it to not be in there because yeah. like, what, what are we doing? Like that is not actually helpful, but of course it made it through in part because that helps again, maybe this is me being a conspiracy theorist, but <laughs> like this, I think honestly, it allows, it allows insurance companies to deny people because it's like mm. very specific criteria. It's like, it's like mild, moderate, and severe. And then yeah. it has to be on my list. And I'm like, there is no eating disorder in the world, that is mild, like,
0: right. Right. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so that's so true. That it would it would break it down in these sort of arbitrary ways. Just yeah, not in any way actually honoring the human experience. Um, just for listeners, can you tell us what the DSM five is, please?
1: Oh, sorry. Um, That's
0: right.
1: Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Um, I think that it's so funny. You know when you like say something so many times, yeah, you kind of forget what it even stands for. Essentially, it's like the big book of uh mental health diagnoses. It's like our, our Bible essentially. And it just got Um,
0: rewritten recently or re updated or whatever. Right. Yeah. They revised
1: it, I think in 2021 or Mm -hmm. 2020. Um, but it was like only a few things changed. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like a whole rewrite, um, DSM five came out in 2013. I was like in grad school when it when it changed, which that was really interesting. Um, having to learn two different books. But
0: oh um, weird. Yeah. yeah. Cause
1: it really I mean, it really had a revamp. Like got it. They changed so many things from DSM four to DSM five. So mm. not great.
0: <laughs> wow. Yeah. My dad was a therapist and I remember um reading through his when I was growing up and uh oh. just like reading all of the definitions of things and being like so fascinated by all of these things. And again, I think at that time it was like uh, all all things queer were sort of diagnosable as mental illness. And uh yeah, there's just a lot about it that has changed since then. I feel so like primitive to look back on almost.
1: It's I don't know, it's funny. <laughs> like I because I, I can say the same like having I'm thinking even like in undergrad I think I took like a psychopathology course, um, or, you know, back then referred to as like abnormal psychology, which that's great. <laughs> that's right. That's, oh <laughs> so man. many problems right there. Um, and I think for some of it, we had to read through like the DSM and I, yeah, I remember being like so fascinated. And, and of course, like, I think if you are, if you are someone who has had any sort of mental health issue, um, reading some of this stuff it it is validating
0: and yeah sure
1: but at the same time sometimes it can be like very othering yeah it's it's like oh shit like I check these boxes I
0: am I am in this book that is not yeah (laughs) Um, I remember because I was like young I would read through and I'd be like okay I have I have all of these like I have, I have a symptom of everything, right? Like OCD, I would like convince myself, like, yes, I have OCD because sometimes I like to arrange things, and you know, I like the order, or I like the whatever. Um, and there were, there were definitely things, and I, I actually feel like that's kind of a valuable lesson to have now. Is like, we all can check boxes in all of these diagnoses, like, yep. that is just part of the human experience being put into boxes and like categories and whatever. So we can hopefully help people, but like, it's really just variations on humanness.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that was a really helpful lesson actually in terms of, um, uh, borderline personality disorder, like mm-hmm. learning for myself and this, I, I believe like when I was at my internship, we had talked about this where it's like at some point or another, everyone can have symptoms of borderline personality. Sure, yeah, like Every teenager really. Yeah. Um, just, you know, very like explosive yeah. emotions, Reactive. or chaotic yeah, like, relationships. There's so many ways in which people could qualify for that diagnosis sure. and not actually have it. But we often see it as like this very other thing, which is like, oh God, like that person has that. And I would never, I can't relate to that at all. But it's yeah. like we all can, you know. Yeah. I think there are so many, so many diagnoses like that where it's like, oh, okay, like I can. Can have empathy for that yeah but yeah that taught me just a lot about that particular diagnosis because again learning in like formal training about borderline you don't learn anything nice um mm-hmm. and you don't learn anything good so being exposed to a very different model was really really helpful where it was like oh wow. actually like yeah you know we're not so we're not so different from our clients it's just for, for them, it has become really disruptive to their life. Whereas right. maybe for others, it's like, this was disruptive to my life for like a minute. And now it's yeah.
0: not. Um, well, so actually that kind of leads into a question I wanted to ask you, which is like the difference between someone with disordered eating and someone with an eating disorder. Can you just talk a little bit about like how you see that? And obviously like anything that you think would be helpful to listeners, because I'm not even sure quite what to ask about it.
1: I get this question a lot, actually, like, what is the difference between an eating disorder and disordered eating? And I I feel like it is a little challenging to answer because it is so similar. And like, even if you look it up, it does not, it's like, there are no significant differences necessarily. Um, The way that I teach it usually is like, there is a gap between like disordered eating and a full blown eating disorder. And that gap is mental health where it's essentially Mm. like someone who is like a disorder eater and they kind of stay in that category, like they have certain alarm bells that might go off if they like stray too far into like really, really dangerous behavior or more like very full-blown eating disorder behavior. Whereas interestingly, I think folks who like will develop an eating disorder or do have one, like their alarm system doesn't work. It's like,
0: Ooh, interesting. Yeah. So it's
1: like, you're, you're doing things that are in complete opposition to what your body needs or wants. And the alarm bell is just like not going off. Okay. Um, I think though, because from what we know with research, like, I think it's like something like 25 to 35% of folks who engage in disordered eating will develop a full-blown eating disorder. So it's, I think you can maybe wear that system down. Um, if I guess yeah, if we're, yeah. I'm using that metaphor where it's like someone with disordered eating over time could potentially like, just uh, surpass yeah. the alarms, um, which then I think is eating disorder territory. Mm. Um, I think a lot of like the quote unquote symptoms are the same, um, yeah. but they just might, they look different.
0: Okay. So there was a freeze and we're just going to go back <laughs> technical difficulties. Um, so you were telling me about the difference between disordered eating and eating disorders. Um, and I, yeah, I found it so fascinating. I'd love to, to finish that up.
1: Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I think I was saying like both can be pretty disruptive to a person's life, but in different ways, like, I guess if we think about it, like someone who is engaging in disordered eating, but they have a lot of people in their life who are doing the same things. Mm -hmm. They're going to have comrades in that, like, you know, go to a restaurant and be ordering a ton of the same stuff with a bunch of modifications. Whereas Mm -hmm. like, I feel like it's little less common for say, like someone with an eating disorder to like be around people who are doing the same stuff that they are
0: Mm. Um, that's an interesting difference just the 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 idea that one has like enough commonalities that it can feel like you're in it together versus one is very isolating because you've sort of gone off the rails of of normal disordered eating into like yeah, weirder behaviors that make someone feel really isolated, not weirder, you know, but right. Although
1: at the same time, I think there are people who are engaged in disordered eating to such a degree where people are sort of side-eyeing them. Like what, the yeah, fuck is this? Sure. Um, but yeah, I do think like disordered eating is a little bit more quote unquote, accept- it's like eating disorder light or something. God, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. That's a horrible
1: thing to say, but it's almost like, oh, people can see this and accept it as like, oh, this is just what people do to stay healthy or stay Mm -hmm. thin versus like, you know, someone with an eating disorder, it's like, oh God, like that is too much. And it's like, they're not that far from each other. Right. And we pathologize one and celebrate the other. So maybe we should look at that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, And something that I think is really interesting that you said about that gap between them being mental health is just thinking too, like, Someone like one person with their, their brain chemistry and their life experience and everything, they might be able to stay in a space of disordered eating forever without developing anything beyond that. And someone else just simply can't Right? like they start down the spiral, it spirals, it just, it just goes and it's now in full blown eating disorder land. Um, and because of those things that are sort of intangible, we don't exactly know why one person can and why one person can't or at one point in their life they could and then it stopped working or whatever, right? That just to, to sort of be aware of like one is almost like a contained version of the other and that so many fact not that it's exactly contained, you know, but so many factors way beyond our awareness or or control determine the difference. Right. Right. so the fact that one would be celebrated one would be pathologized like w- w- is just bonkers and the whole thing the whole thing
1: is kind the of bonkers. whole thing is bonkers yeah. <laughs> but but you're right I mean I think there's there there are so many things too that like might keep someone in like disordered eating or dieting which those could be interchangeable um yeah 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 versus an eating disorder like there, there's just so many, like so much we don't know and may never mm-hmm. understand, but you know, um, I think it was in 2019, they did a study, like it was a really big study, um, that identified there, that there's like a metabolic origin potentially to, um, eating disorders, which like, okay, like that might explain why someone shifts into yeah. an eating disorder versus like you kind of know staying in disordered eating. Um, and I just want to say, like, I know we're talking about it in terms of like that one is like worse than the other, but I know that folks who experience disordered eating are also suffering. Oh, yeah. Uh, and definitely don't want to minimize that because that also is miserable. It's really just miserable either way.
0: It's all miserable, but I do think it's so interesting just that we have these categories and that we we see yeah. these particular categories as so, so different. And I suppose probably uh substance abuse is a similar place It's like celebrated to be a party person. it's you know sort of looked right. down upon to be an addict. So somewhere in between these two things which are not necessarily so different except the they also are uh, right. is yeah
1: well it's about the environment
0: yeah, sure. Um, okay, so before we finish up, I did just want to ask um in your practice, what do you see as the the sort of like relationship between eating disorder and body image issues?
1: a Good question. Because
0: um, I think a lot of people assume that they go hand in hand, but I, I actually feel like they're pretty separate. Like certainly they coexist a lot, but, but I'm curious how you see it coming from the other side.
1: I, mean, I, I think for, I do think that for a large majority of people with eating disorders, that body image is a huge component um, to the point of like being a deterrent in their recovery process a lot of yeah. the time just because your body is potentially changing and that's really difficult to tolerate. Um, I mean, I, I will say that there are certainly some people I've worked with who their body image stuff is so profoundly worse than other people um, mm-hmm. that it's almost like, huh, like what is yeah. what is that about? Um, but oftentimes it can be really challenging to actually work on the body image stuff because they are so um, compromised mm. um, physiologically that it's like, mm, uh, putting out this fire here is like kind of missing the wildfire in the background.
0: Yeah, um, totally. So
1: it, do I, I, I do think that they, because a, a common underlying mechanism for eating disorders is like overvaluation of, or overvaluation of uh, weight and shape. And that, so that's like kind of a pretty core yeah. commonality across many eating disorders, not the only one. Um, but that I think is more or less like a fundamental piece of of things, even though yeah. it's like, obviously it's about other stuff. It's not necessarily yeah, yeah. like the only thing, but I do think it is a component that, I don't know. It's a pretty big one. Yeah. Um, and, Yeah. I I can't say I have seen very many people with eating disorders at this point in my career who have not struggled really significantly with body image stuff uh, in one way or another throughout their experience.
0: So what's interesting in my practice is I get a lot of people who have essentially gone through recovery. They have gotten their eating uh, behaviors, uh, whatever, under control, or they actually feel like they're pretty damn recovered and they still have such lingering you know, substantial body image issues that they're like, okay, well, there was no time or space to deal with that in recovery. So now yeah. is the time to deal with it. So I actually work with a lot of people with body image issues who used to have both, but now only have, you know, cause it's like okay. a triage situation, right? Like not eating yeah. could kill you. So fix that first deal with that. Like obviously they're related, right. but that is the, you know, sort of glaring alarm bell. Um, and, uh, and then there comes a point where they're like, yeah, but what the hell? I still feel these ways, or I still have these thoughts, or I still have these things. And so that's kind of the the space that a lot of my clients come in. That, and it's fascinating yeah. to sort of see. I mean, obviously some people, you know, never had anything in the space of disordered eating as well. You can just, you can just right. have body image issues, but like, it is an interesting um, space.
1: I'm not surprised by that, honestly, like at all, um, yeah. because I think there is this like I don't even know how to conceptualize it, but there is this belief, I think that, oh, well, if you are fully nourished and you like go through your recovery process and you like mostly like level things out, the body image stuff will just go away. I I swear I have heard that Um, my own treatment and from others. And it's like, that is not how it works. Like you still have to live in the world. Yeah. um, And all of the things that created your eating disorder didn't go away. Like right. you're still you, and there are ways in which you're going to have to really like come nose to nose with why you're mm-hmm. you or like the things that make you you, and some of those might not be things you like. And yeah. I think like it has to channel somewhere. So of course it's going to potentially come out through yeah. body image or self worth, etc. But yeah, I sometimes by that.
0: Yeah, I I sometimes think of it as like um the the shift from focusing on appearance to focusing like on performance in the gym. The time that I was working out, there was a very, very big push uh, in my world to be like, get strong, not skinny, you know? And, uh, and I, I bought in and I was like, well, this, this will cure me of all of my insecurities. How wonderful. And then um, when I got injured, I discovered like, Oh, son of a bitch. Like I had just put all those same habits and patterns and insecurities. I just scooted them over to the next category. And I was like, is this category better than the first one? Yeah, sure. Because it's not quite as like societally pressured right. in as it is to be strong. But I just basically scooted it from aesthetics to performance and was still completely on the other side of it was like, well, I still don't like myself, though. Like there's still stuff here that is just getting in the same exact way. So I I wonder sometimes if it's like somebody who goes through that recovery if they're kind of in the same boat where it just gets scooted over to like the the slightly better option and then they get to heal the slightly better option and then we just keep scooting it along.
1: Yeah, I think that's what it is. It's like okay, well, I'm not you're not dying anymore. Yeah,
0: I'm safe. So like
1: that's nice, great, Mm -hmm. awesome. Okay, go about your life now. Like go on. Yeah, (laughs) it is. I think the, the body image piece though, like not being resolved, it's why people relapse. Mm. And I think like even well down the line, it's why people relapse. Um, because it's just not, hasn't been like remedied and that's, that's unfortunate. Um, so again, I think lots of issues within the eating disorder field that is arguably one of them. Um, but Hmm. I, I do think that there is more, again, more push for like, okay, you can do body image work, not necessarily in the very like critical stages but like yeah. when someone is you know moving along a little bit and gaining traction yeah. like, okay we can talk about this and hope that the person can tolerate it um cuz i think even just mm. talking about it makes a difference
0: yeah definitely um okay well thank you so much for being on here this was great i have so many questions i didn't even get to because <laughs> the the work that you do is so interesting to me um i would invite you to share if you want people to find you where can they look you up
1: Sure. Um, I'm on Instagram at uh, The Cranky (laughs) Therapist. And uh, on Twitter, I am Jess Sprengle LPC. But if you just type in The Cranky Therapist, you'll find me on there as well. Um, And I think that's it.
0: Okay, cool. Um, All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure to talk to you and uh, to everybody listening. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on uh, Instagram as well at Jesse Neeland, and you can find my website at jessineeland dot com. Shoot me a message, shoot me an email. However, you want to reach out is great. And uh, yeah, I will catch you next episode.